0: Living in a very volatile, loud environment and family My father, interestingly not, but everyone else was To be heard, you needed to have a perspective You needed to have something to really sort of shout out And, and that, that definitely peaked with me To be able to sort of cut through the noise of what was going on But interestingly as well, another side to me developed with that Which was The Peacemaker and the person trying to calm things down from this volatility as well, looking for solutions, looking creatively for solutions. And that's been quite pivotal in my life, this yearning for really quite chaotic, volatile situations and really constantly wanting them. You know, I get bored quite easily, but at the same time, working through those to try and see, well, how can I calm those down?
1: Whether a startup founder or someone with a good idea that hasn't been taken seriously due to gender, race, or sexual identity, or just feeling jaded by the lack of passion and purpose in business, you'll be uplifted by this week's interview with three guests. Mark Gilmore, Alan Shaw, and John Basnage. John, Alan, and Mark recently joined forces to launch a new purpose-driven investment firm, fuse their diverse skills in marketing and branding, corporate finance and law, and technology. In part one of this joint discussion, we cover their collective yet wildly diverse upbringings. Alan was born in the notorious and violent Compton neighborhood of LA, grew up in a poor but loving family who nurtured and guided him to an education that enabled him to escape being just another statistic. Mark describes being born in Canada as a welcome baby, moving to the UK at an early age and being educated in the private schooling system. He describes growing up in a volatile and loud home environment and how it conditioned him to ensure his voice was heard and prepared him to thrive in a chaotic and volatile work environment. John describes him born into a loving quirky family and describes his upbringing as a container of abundance, scarcity and boredom and how his early ambitions were focused on academia. All three discuss their first memories of their emerging sexual identities, their self-awareness and discovery, early ambitions, influences, motivations and goals, and the serendipity or happenstance that set them on their life journeys. In part two, Mark Allen and John dive deep into their new investment venture and its purpose—to recognize, celebrate, embrace, and drive difference through investing in the underinvested and the underrepresented minorities and startups. I hope you enjoy the ego-free honesty, passion, purpose, and common unity of Mark Gilmore, Alan Shaw, and John Basnage. First of all, I uh, have to say a thank you to ex-guest Robert Marchetti for making the introduction recommendations that we interview Mark. But Mark suggested it would be interesting to follow a slightly different format than just interviewing himself to interview his new business partners, John and Alan. So thank you for the three of you for coming together in this uh, first time we've done three people in one interview. So it's going to be interesting little journey, but I'm sure it's going to be fun and we'll probably sort of uh, mix it up a little bit. But before we really get into talking about your very diverse journeys to coming together as a new business and your different journeys through life in branding, marketing, technology, what seems to be law and corporate finance, and maybe you can sort of dissect that a bit more. We'd love to for you to give us a little bit of background about all your collective upbringings and the impact of your parents on the direction uh, that you've all taken in life. So I don't mind who starts. So over to you guys.
2: So for me, I don't know, I I guess it's interesting, we'll see. So I was born in 1970s Compton, California. And for those who don't know much about Compton, California or the Linwood area, back in the 70s was probably the most densely populated uh, group of African-Americans in the United States, but it also had the highest crime rate in the state of California. And so um, statistically, if you think about it, just based on this code I was born, I should be either incarcerated dead or, or, you know, strung out on drugs. And so their you know, life, life was adventurous, but um, as a child, my parents were quite crafty. I'll share a quick story. I remember going to school and, and always wondering why we had to stop blocks away from the school to be let out of the car. And this is in grade school. So I was, I don't know, I was, I was pretty young. And what, what I've soon realized chatting with my parents, is that they would lie about. Frankly, they would commit fraud about where we lived. And the reason why they did that is because, again, we were very poor. We did. We, you know, there were two jobs. Uh, my sister and I were latchkey kids, but they wanted to make sure that we were well educated. And so they would lie about our home where we lived, so that we can go to the best schools. And at the time, uh, those best schools were were, were primarily. Uh, white white schools, and so the whole purpose of you know you know getting dropped off blocks away from school, we walked to school. You know, kids were asked us questions about you know where do we live, and 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 you know about our home life, and it was you know I soon realized that my my experience and and my environment was vastly different of those around me, and so when you think about my parents and kind of what they shared with me and my sister. Uh, there's a couple of things that always came to mind. Now, my mother would always tell me that I, she, you know, I won't be a statistic. She refused that I, I become a statistic. And while we may not have had very much, what we did have was always funneled to myself and my sister. And so I grew up thinking that. I grew up thinking life, and more importantly, the word fair is simply a four-letter word. Um, not to get caught up in the word fair. Life is not going to be fair for me. Uh, it's not going to be fair for me because I'm 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 Black, African-American. It's not going to be fair for me because I'm LGBT. It's not going to be fair for me because I didn't come from a wealthy family or grew up in a astute or affluent neighborhood. And so for me, understanding that early on and, and hearing from my parents that I won't be a statistic and hearing from my parents that you have to be twice as good for half as much, it just set me on a course to know that regardless of what happens, I'm going to have to just buckle down and, and figure it out. You know, Failure was not an option. Um, there was no backup plan. There was no family estate. There was no trust or inheritance. It was these eyes, these hands, and this mouth. And so for me, I, that really, and in terms of my parents, that was really the, the crux of it. Again, they worked all the time. And so it was more about study as hard as you can, learn as much as you, as you can from others, always had rules around right and wrong, grew up in the church for the most part, and, and that set me well on my way. So, you know, when you grew up in that environment and and everyone looks the same, um, everyone, you know, lives in the same neighborhood, primarily goes to the same schools. We didn't, right? My parents took care of that. You don't have an appreciation or perspective of what you're, quote unquote, missing out. And frank, frank, frankly, I don't know if we really did miss out. Was mm-hmm. our lives different? Absolutely. But I didn't really know that we were poor. And I didn't know just how different our lives were until I started to go to predominantly white schools. had no idea because that just was not my environment. And so, yeah, it's interesting you say that, but I I would say that as a child, I didn't feel as if I didn't have something or we were without. And that really didn't happen until I became much older and started to realize that, you know, lives of of people who look different than me was just vastly different.
1: Before we jump into get John and Mark's perspective on this, when did your worldview change, and when did you start to have ambitions beyond Compton and LA? When did they start to form, and what were those early ambitions?
2: Yeah, I think my ambitions changed in really in junior high and high school, and you know that that common that you know repetitive voice, you know, you won't be a statistic, you won't be a statistic, and again, like I like I said earlier. It, to st- statistically I should not even be sitting here i should i should not be literally having this conversation with you and so I started to early on really have two different passions I had a passion for music I mentioned earlier we we grew up in the church i remember in grade school my my teacher would start the morning with uh, oh what a beautiful morning and everyone would sing it and and I just particularly enjoyed singing it and and I had no idea that that would lead to a partial scholarship and classical uh, voice performance. And, and ultimately, I uh, although I did not finish college, I, I started to go to college because of music. But but the only reason why I got there actually was because I couldn't go into the military. So in junior high and high school and partial of college, I went to a program called Reserve Officer Training and um, it was for individuals that were interested in becoming military leaders. And, and that was really my passion. I love leadership. I love um, understanding organizational structures and and how to move things forward. But um, back in the '90s, it was it was not legal for you to be gay and in the military. And so I started. Interesting enough, what I see as doors being slammed in my face. I couldn't go in military because I was gay. I I didn't have things, uh, afforded to in privileged because I was black and so have work twice as hard for half as much. I didn't see those things as really uh, negative impacts, but I actually, that generated my passion and generated my ambition. And so when I couldn't go into the military, I said, all right, fine, I'll, I'll become a classically you know, trained singer. Uh, went into college, started to to go down that path, enjoyed it immensely, but it just did not make a lot of money. And I still had this family of mine that were absolutely struggling. So I had a choice to make. Do I continue down the road in my passions and do the things that I think are important to me, or do I slow down and pick a different profession that allows for me to make uh, a living uh, wage, but then I can share that money, share that opportunity with my family and help my family out? And so I chose the latter. I chose to go into technology, and that's how I ended up you know, leaving the military, not pursuing my music career and ultimately uh, becoming a a technologist. It was because of a necessity I needed to help my family survive. And so um, that, that, that's it.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe Mark over to you and to give us what was happening in parallel (laughs) as you grew up and not, not in Compton, LA.
0: No, no. um, very, Very different. And by the sounds of it, actually, a bit before, Alan, as well. You've given away something I didn't know about your age when you said the 70s. I'm, I'm the product of the late 60s uh, parents. So um, I was actually born in Montreal, Canada. Um, so And I was, I was what my parents called a, a welcome baby because my father worked for the Boroughs <laughs> Welcome Foundation. And it was a very cold winter's night. And um, they, they weren't planning any more children, but they got... As they said quite drunk at a party, and um, I was conceived. So I've got three older sisters. I was definitely you know, there's a big age gap, and I was um, uh, yeah very nicely put welcome. And so you know grew up in that environment, quite a doting environment. I felt you know I, I think probably quite spoiled in, in in many respects. Moved over to the UK and um, is um, the product of the English public school system, which of course rather bizarrely mean private and going to prep school and then and then secondary school in the uk very loving but quite often volatile family i guess and i'd often look at my family and we'd be very very expressive and i used to look with real envy at my friend bobby because he was a single child and everything was very calm. It was always and I went round to lunch and it was all at a certain time and it was always it was always just very, very placid and peaceful. And you know, come around to mine and it was just like mad. But of course he, he used to say he loved coming around to mine because it was just different. And and I think you yeah, know that there's that's my first appreciation that sometimes you you know, I was looking at my situation in life thinking, oh my gosh, you know, this is just chaotic and whatever, I just want to be something else. But actually, it's just different, you know, and and it's not yeah, it's not normal. It's not so. It's just it's just different. So, you know that that for me really. And you you asked Mark about curiosity. Living in a very volatile, loud environment in, in family, a father, interesting not, But everyone else was to be heard. You needed to have a perspective. You needed to have something to really sort of shout out, and and that that definitely. Peaked with me to be able to sort of cut through the noise of what was going on. On the whole, good noise. There were some times when it, it, I felt quite, quite a lot of stress. But interestingly, as well, another side to me developed with that, which was the peacemaker and the person trying to calm things down from this volatility as well, looking for solutions, looking creatively for solutions, and that's been quite pivotal in my life. This yearning for really quite chaotic, volatile situations and really constantly wanting them. You know, I get bored quite easily, but at the same time, working through those to try and see, well, how can I calm those down with with things that I want to do? So that that's sort of quite quite an interesting thing. Mum and dad, mum was, she was, her parents were missionaries in Africa, actually, and they died out there. Um, When she was very young, so she was an orphan and brought brought up in 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 Wales in the UK, and and that shaped her outlook. And so there was definitely a strong and um, from a different background, but similar to what Alan was saying, there was with him there was a strong religious overtone with my upbringing. And you know, she was very, very, very obvious about that. You know, with quite often things which were said which slightly grated with me, like the Sodom and Gomorrah comments or something like that, because you know, she's probably thinking about me and 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 suspecting something whereas dad was from a very strict upbringing in scotland went to a private school as well and he was he is utterly or was utterly the most fair honest man i've ever met in my life and 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 you know i think that i have so much respect for his his drive to really ensure that he did the right thing he was a pharmacist. Um, but quite lonely as well. His his upbringing, because of the strictness and because of again the the private school system, which I'm not the biggest fan of. I have to have to be honest with you, and I've got a sort of little story about that in a second. Is it suppressed emotions, and that was a characteristic of of my father, who I loved dearly. But I until he was really in his last year and a half of his life, it was very difficult to get through to him, and that to me played out in in many respects and you know for, for a long time for me my, my sexuality was something very very he- held back with me in life and interestingly i 've got, I've got this thing about sexuality and sensuality going on in my life on the one hand, my sexuality I felt was not really able to come out for various reasons whether it was religion or my father and that 's me blaming something else you know in the end of the day it's up to me but you know these are external factors i 'm feeling that or feeling in my household i don 't want to create more noise with, oh, guess what? I'm gay versus my earliest memories are about scent, touch, sound. I used to create themes to move movies when I was younger and you know put little plays on and put little background tracks on and things like this. I used to love touching things and touching carpets and walls to see what the sensuality was. And I always felt that that was my calling and thinking about being in a creative industry but maybe there was an interconnection between sex- sexuality and sensuality going on there, which I didn't, I didn't really understand at the time. So, you know, that's really my upbringing. Lot- lots of things going on and then, um, and, then, and then sort of helped shape in many respects what, what I am today. So uh,
1: you were saying, Sorry, you were saying something about a story you were going to tell about public versus private. Uh, oh, yeah. You talk Thank about
0: you, Bettina. Sorry, yes, I should have come back to that. The story is the impact of words on individuals, particularly when you're in a place of authority. And there's been moments in my life when people have said something to me and it's really stayed with me. And they're quite sometimes innocuous words. And I'm sure I'm guilty of doing the same. And, you know, for that, I, it would cause me great concern. But at school, at the, the private school, I just remember the one time a teacher came up to me and said we're here to make a man of you we're going to make a man of you and those words for a young boy going through puberty and you know really exploring himself and his sexuality absolutely cut through me like a knife and I'm sure he the teacher doesn't remember them and it's probably a you know it was very part of the system there they had their their codes and what they wanted you to do but it added this and i and i quite often think about you know we get layered in life all these things which happen to you and you talk mark about nurture your nurture a lot of the time is just layering stuff on your legs on top of your, your ego you know that layer came on top of me and it put the barriers up and so you know when those are reinforced in life it causes you to maybe alter your behavior and not really express yourself so you know. The sexuality, sensuality I talked about, but probably one of the things coming out of my childhood is which I I really try and celebrate today and I've got a lot still to learn is about helping myself and other people really truly be themselves. Because, you know, and particularly for for young people, it's so incredibly important to have a safe environment where people really, truly feel they
1: can be themselves without judgment. Do you think... um... I mean, you, you said you went to a private school. Was it a boarding or was it a day school?
0: So it was a boarding school, but we lived close and you, you know, it was a small amount of us who could go, but literally I was there eight in the morning to late at night.
1: So really that environment created that pressure and those layers.
0: Only I mean, girls at a certain age and things like that. So it was, it was very much a product of that system.
1: Interesting. You said the sense of touch and the way that you were sensing the world and, and through the aesthetics. Did you have ambitions at that point? Because the way you're describing it, it sounds like you were on a course to go into somewhere like Central St. Martin's to do fashion design or... The next Tom Dixon.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. Do you know, And crazy it was my ambition was to be an airline pilot. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah, exactly. I ended up joining British Airways, but that was really more driven by a desire to travel. I love travel. And I was, you know, I, I think that that was incredibly important to me. It was about exploring and, again, that curiosity, different environments, different people, different cultures. But I remember it was bizarre once I was on an aircraft and I just, I just remember looking around the cabin and th- looking at all the different aesthetic and textures and things going on, thinking, oh my gosh, I wonder how this was created. And then a few years later, I was actually heading up the creation of, of certain cabins for British Airways. So, you know, that's, and again, serendipity, I would was, I was sometimes use the word fate, but, you know, I think it's it's sort of my path really eventually got me to where I was I was incredibly happy.
1: Okay. Well, that takes us to a nice point. We'll um, maybe pivot to John and get John's background and backstory.
3: Sure. It's funny, I don't think of my history as in narrative sense or even a linear sense and i think it's i was thinking while both mark and alan were talking that i remember events but i don't really know how to tie those events to a narrative about what i am or what i become but i do remember certain things like you mentioned just in the beginning about abundance and scarcity and um i remember my life being one of being containers of both you know like um both being in one sense for a period, very poor, but also having relatives who, when you came or when there was a holiday, everything was put on the table and there was an abundance of everything.
1: Just to say, where you, where were you born?
3: I was born, well, I was born in Virginia at a naval base. And my, my father was in the Navy. So the first three years, I was in various places in the south, uh, southern part of the states. Um, don't remember any of them. I think my, my mother was probably least happy somewhere in East North, eastern North Carolina somewhere. But uh, we moved to Pennsylvania just outside of Philadelphia when I was three or four, so my first memories of that. And I was a very, well, is there a typical, but I was going to say a very typical suburban, I was going to say 1990s existence, but like the 1960s. And it was before the suburbs even became kind of, was ever, it was before films like Heathers were made. But the, sur, the suburbs are both safe, but incredibly dull. And I just remember being incredibly restless and uh, kind of just waiting to to get out really and the funny the funny thing is other than other than being maybe moderately at risk cuz i was both short and gay i don't know how ob- obviously i probably well obviously short i don't know how obviously gay it was <laughs> whatever that means but i mean i, I felt it wasn't an, an uncomfortable wasn't an uncomfortable existence other than being dull i mean my family was a little quirky so we didn't have a tv until i was about 16 cuz my parents
1: didn't believe in it
3: and when we did get one we had one station which was pbs this
1: is long ago, obviously. Wow, that no, but that's that's really interesting. That we've yeah. only had one other guest that had a similar sort of upbringing, uh, Dr. Pamela Smith. But so I interrupted you asking about abundance and scarcity.
3: That's an example of it. I mean, we had I would go in junior high school and everyone would be talking about Saturday Night Live. I know what they're talking about. I didn't know Big Bird had two different colors on I didn't know there was two different colors of yellow on Big Bird until I went to college. You know, and then my you know, with quirky in other ways, like my mother, her, her idea of landscaping was much more a certain kind of english cottage landscaping which didn't go very well didn't go down that well in the suburbs wherever you know we didn't cut our grass regularly uh we never raked our leaves my father left us but my father was kind of from a posh family but also went to woodstock and so there was all there's a lot of there's a lot of disjointness between the way a life that could have been and a life that was or aspirations and actuality but i always felt very loved i think my my grandparents particular one was a professor at a college um the other one was a books kind of an antiquarian they one of one who never could have it. the antiquarian was never able to keep a job but or actually selling any books or antiques but he had amazing amazing things if you go to visit him amazing things to look at i mean magazines from the 19th century things that you know cigar holders all sorts of stuff he liked to he's anyway i i kind of felt enriched and loved by that so i i didn't have issues around self-worth i think but i was incredibly bored
1: so how did you, how did you entertain yourself? Well, first of all, did you have uh, uh, other your siblings? I assume
3: I had two siblings. Uh, one was a welcome baby, like Mark, who was ten years younger than me. That's a great. I I love that. Term. <laughs> I'm gonna ask. Yes, yeah. that's they will be named now. Uh, the other one was just a few years younger than me. But you know, this being Eastern Pennsylvania, we basically played in the mud with Tonka trucks or built forts in the cornfields. That was kind of the extent of, of our excitement. I mean I did read a fair bit by the time I was 14. I didn't read a lot before that. I read a lot in junior high school and high school. Um and I think by the time I was about by the time I was 14 or 15 I was just I just all focused on going to college.
1: Mm-hmm. And did you have any sort of ambitions at that point about where you saw your life going?
3: I wanted to be an academic I think at that point. I had the idea of this of a very fair, you know, a sort of academic world where everything was very fair uh, and people who knew the most were the happiest. And, you know, I didn't think much, I didn't know anything about politics. My parents didn't teach me anything about that whole world. But I, yeah, I kind of wanted to live in tweeds
1: and read read books. Interesting that you use that word fair. I mean, Alan would have given you a sort of a, a wake-up call to fairness if you'd met him at that stage. It's interesting. I moved around so much as a child, and I think I had a very mixed-up view of a confused world view, and I wasn't really sure about my own sense of identity. You've all mentioned about your acknowledging that you were aware of your sexuality uh, at quite an early stage. At what age did you start to become aware of your sexual identity? That could be all of you. I mean, it's um, I'm just intrigued at. What- so there is this.
3: There is this TV show called Zoom on on P- public TV, which was a bunch of uh, probably eight to 12 year olds in pajamas doing cool stuff with letters and making plans. And I just remember being intrigued by particularly the boys in their pajamas, but it was that, at that point it was more of an aesthetic thing, I think, but I, I and maybe that's what sexuality actually is aesthetics. But
0: yeah. I think um, for me, I, it, it's so interesting. I remember something very vividly. I was standing in the school playground next to come up with the name of the person's name and, they were talking about girls at the time. I just said, I prefer boys. And this is, you know, I was probably seven, eight. And, and so when people ask me that, that question, I mean, that, that was a sort of a, a defining moment because I said it. Mm-hmm. But my sort of thoughts about sexuality have never really been any different. And they, they, they really sort of, did, I could probably have some random thoughts uh, even earlier on just about what was going on inside of me. And
1: what about you, Alan?
2: It's a tough one. I never felt different, if that makes any sense. Like I never felt like one day I felt one way and then the next day I felt another way that I never experienced that. And I would say early on, I uh, I had an uncle or have an uncle, I should say, that that now we know he, he is um, queer and he would often share ideas and and um, hang out with me. And I think it was then that I realized that I I had more in common maybe with men or I felt more comfortable with men than women, but I, there, there was nothing that was like acute or, or, or significant. It was very, always one-sided for me.
1: We always, when we interview individuals, we usually ask them about defining moments in their upbringing. Do you think collectively that uh, those Sort of that recognition of your sexuality was a, a defining moment, or are there any other defining moments you think you can look back on your childhood that set you on the path that you went, the the path that you took?
2: I think I, I don't mind kicking off. I think a, a defining moment for me, and maybe it's painful. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's painful. Maybe I'm I'm just different. But um I think a defining moment for me is when I remember I was in high school, actually leaving junior high, going to high school. And um, I had a friend, um, his father was the chairman of Westinghouse Securities or Westinghouse the company at the time. And, and I didn't really know any of that, any of that meant. And uh, I remember, you know, going over to his house, we were friends and, and his, t- his sister had his own room and, and his massive house. And, and um, it was that moment that I realized that, wow, this, my life is really, truly really different. And, and the purpose of the comment is because I never had my own room until probably, until I was a junior in high school. And we never really lived, we never lived in a house. I can't remember, the last time we lived in a house was probably again, maybe my my junior, senior year high school. And prior to that, we lived in, we lived in a couple of garages. We lived in a few cars. Uh, we certainly lived in a couple of motels. But to me, that was a defining moment to really truly understand uh, the disparity And that my life was truly on a totally different trajectory than those around me, that that was a defining moment for me, truly feeling different. Like to that point, I never really knew I was different in terms of economic or socioeconomic status. But but hanging out with my friend and and this beautiful mansion and all these beautiful things that that was a defining moment for me, that that I really was in a different place than, than most of my peers. I struggle Personally, with
0: the question a bit because I think I mentioned this before. When I look at at life, I look at moments which have sort of layered on me, and, and I can't think of one necessary which is just significantly more or or, or whatever. But you know, interestingly, I think often, you know is, is when when Alan's talking, i was thinking, oh gosh, you know, maybe, maybe I should think of one very very early on because you know. I, I should really have defined myself early on. And, you know, and this is, by the way, is a strong, another sort of thing which comes through me is a strong sense of doing the right thing. Let's question what is the right thing. But anyway, but then I was thinking, you know, marrying my husband, Oscar, who, when and if you, if you meet him, you'll realise he is absolutely the polar opposite to me. And in, in every sense of the word, I mean, he's, he's a bloody nightmare, but I love him to bits and we love each other to bits and whatever. But... You know, and he says I'm a nightmare as well, by the way, so it's a two-way street. But, you know, his his background from living a very agrarian life in Argentina to being someone who's extremely expressive and, and you know, being quite, you know, get it out in the open straight away to all these things, you know, that, that has been extremely defining for me in my 40s. And you, <laughs> I'm thinking, crikey, you know. But then, you know, I, I think I'll go through life continuing to define and hopefully... Learn and get better about myself, but you know each of these are big moments of self-reflection and
1: moving on. John, what struck me with what you said about yourself was how bored you were. That is something I've never encountered uh, in my life. How did you deal with that? Because being bored doesn't usually lead someone into a life of the, the success that you've had. You can be distracted. You can be pulled in other directions. Some, some nefarious activities <laughs> you could have been uh, pulled into a gang or I'm intrigued as to how you dealt with that as a child and how you sort of channeled your energy into a focus to become successful in your career and at what point did that you look back and say I've passed that period of my life where I'm bored and was it a byproduct of your home life are you just saying because you didn't have television did you have access to books were you, know what was your level of what was your level of curiosity like as a child
3: yeah i think i took other people's world views or their set of tastes for granted or i just accepted them so i i was never idle and i couldn't sit still but some of the things that i might have liked to do like i really wanted to be a gymnast i've always been really good at that but my, my mother or my parents particularly my mother just didn't think that was something boys did or dance for instance so I had to do things other than go to ballet class or go to gymnastics
1: school. Shame YouTube wasn't around at those days. You could have uh, set your mother straight TikTok, on that I, one. Yeah, <laughs> I could have. I could have been a TikTok. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> I think it was learning that I didn't need to live within the constraints of other people's values. Uh, so my mother would want me to read certain books and or certain expectations about how you spent your day, and that my family would be very happy to on holidays to sit in a room after they ate and talk about, I don't know what, for three hours and realizing that you didn't have to do that, that you, your reality, that their reality was really boring, but that's partly because it wasn't yours. It wasn't your choice. So I think I learned, I learned to go where my spirit wanted to take me. I mean, to sort of find excitement and fulfillment in my own things. And I think for me, it was a real, and, you know, I think for some, for a lot of people, it's a little bit like Alan's story. I didn't know that I didn't have the same limits that Alan had. But my limits were ones uh, I didn't know that people could do that. I didn't know you could read that. I didn't know that you could say that. I didn't know that people did those things or read those books. Or, so I, didn't, I kind of just took for granted that this little tiny part of Pennsylvania I grew up in was the whole world. Even though I knew there were other cities, I just assumed there was nothing bigger than the very boring books your, your parents had on their bookshelves. So I think it was learning not to be constrained by the givens.
1: You went from a love of dance and wanting to be a gymnast. You became a lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) 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 You got to explain that one.
3: That was a bit of a, that was sad. Yeah, of course. I was actually, (laughs) I was hedging all my bets and you know, my, I had been kind of middle-class until I was 14 and my family was poor. My parents, my parents split up and we really struggled. Um, my brothers and my mother and I, so I was very motivated and trying to not be poor. So I went to my first undergrad degree, I did biochemistry and I was going to go to medical school, but I got a scholarship to go study at Oxford. And my second passion was medieval English. So I did biochemistry and English as an undergraduate, went to Oxford to do medieval studies. And after two terms there, you know, two terms, there, readings for Gawain and everything else being cold because everything was, you know, they still had those heaters where you had to put 10 pieces in to keep the little red coils going and um, eating hobnobs and drinking tea. And, to, you know, that was like three meals a day of hobnobs and tea. I thought I can't do this and it it anyway the scholarship was transferable to to do to an undergraduate I was doing graduate work I could use this college to do an undergraduate degree in law as it turned out there was a place in my college so it was it was happenstance I mean I I had no idea exactly what I was getting into and sort of studying laws and I'm studying law you're just reading cases it's very different than being a corporate lawyer but it was it was a very cozy and welcoming environment so it was it was financially driven at first I mean you can't be a can't be a doctor Decide you can't be an academic. Fall back on law.
0: I just have to interrupt here, and John's going to kill me for this. But yesterday, John indulged Alan and I in some medieval English. I literally, as Alan said, he thought, "What was it?" He thought he'd missed the keyboard had gone. I thought he was just banging on the keyboard. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it was
0: the funniest text moment. I was like. Where did this
3: come from? <laughs> I wanted to prepare them for my story. Well, I think there was actually some, some, yeah. some curiosity. Yeah. But the thing is, I, I, you know, in, in a weird way, I think almost in any space you can find, if you look for it, you can, in almost any profession, you might be suited to certain things better than others, but in almost any profession, you can find a part of it that isn't intellectually interesting. So you're surrounded by the most interesting people, and you make the most of it. And I think I could have done a lot of other things. I might have done some things better. But I found in law, even though it wasn't a, for my first love, I, I really found interesting people. I found it intellectually stimulating, and it let let me actually come back to London because I was after I left university here, I was I had to go back to the states, and law allowed me to come back and work in the UK.
1: Okay, we'll leave part one there. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina Michele and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.